501, and we've got my good friend Stephen Mackey back on the podcast talking his book, The Locker Room, and I'm excited for you to hear Mackey being back on the podcast. Mackey is an old friend of mine. We used to be part of the same church years ago, and yeah, you're going to love hearing from him if you haven't uh, heard him before in the podcast, which he's been on a couple times, Uh, but let me talk to you about a few things before we get to that Last week was episode number 500. If you're good with math, you already figured that out. And a lot of you have sent in some really kind words celebrating 500 episodes, and that means a lot to me. I do appreciate all the love and all support. Thank you for celebrating this with me. One of the things that's uh, pretty special is when you have people who can celebrate stuff with you. Let me tell you a story. I have driven the same truck for 16 years. All three of my daughters came home from college in this exact same truck, excuse me, came home from the hospital after they were born. They haven't gone to college yet. They're not that precocious. I mean, they're they're smart, but, you know, not like going to college when they're eight. Um, anyway, never mind. So Audrey, Avery, and Adeline all came home from the hospital. Same old pickup truck of mine. And uh, finally bit the bullet day after uh, Easter, got a new truck, got a new black pickup truck. And uh, the best part about it was driving home. And they were all outside and I pulled into the driveway and they were all just screaming, giggling, celebrating with me. And like, I, I hate, uh, I hate that for people who don't have, uh, people at home in their life, family, close people who celebrate wins with them because it's just not the same. And so to celebrate 500 episodes with, uh, friends like you, uh, who reached out, shared the love, it, uh, it means a lot to me because there's nothing like celebrating something good with the people who care about you. So thank you for that. Um, I said when I started that podcast, I was going to split it up and do two episodes. And some of you said, hey, I can't wait for episode two, which tells me one thing. You didn't finish it. You didn't finish the episode. You need to finish it if you want part two, because part two is actually in part one. I was just, I started, was cranking them out, wanted to get through all 12 of the clips and you know, it was late Monday night. I'd actually just finished an elders meeting. I was in my office till, you know, nine or 10, finishing it up before I left to go out to uh, California, which I'll tell you about in just a second. And uh, like, it just one thing led to another, just finished them all. And so if you're like, hey, I can't wait to listen to episode two, hey, what that means is you need to finish episode one first, because the whole thing is one and two in one episode. Now, um, second thing, some of you have been asking that uh, I was in California on campus at Pepperdine at uh, one of my favorite events of the year, which is Harbor. And I was doing, among other things, two sessions with Kristen Kobes Dume, the New York Times bestselling author of the book Jesus and John Wayne. Some of you said, hey, are you going to share that on the podcast? <clears throat> Great news. I am. But not this week. Uh, I'm going to put out the first session we did, I think, next week. And so look forward to hearing from Kristen being back on the podcast next week. Uh, it'll be kind of fun. I always enjoy uh, live recordings. And uh, yeah, she was she was a great guest. Obviously, she's brilliant. Obviously, she's very thoughtful. Uh, but she was uh, just a good person, uh, kind of person you want to root for and celebrate and make sure you appreciate uh, the stuff that she's doing. So uh, Kristen Kobes dume at Harbor next week, episode number one. But this week, Stephen Mackey on the podcast talking about his book the locker room you're gonna love it check it out here we go <laughs> all right friends welcome back to the show guys i am very excited to be joined again by my good friend Stephen Mackey. how are you sir 
Bro, I'm better now that I'm looking at your beautiful face. Oh, come on hanging now. Hanging out with you. I mean, it's a podcast, but I get to see you. Come so, on now. Steven, Brother Mackey, let me tell you one thing I have regretted for probably, I think it's been eight years. We were at your house in uh, the Denton area. We were working out, and I brought my dog, Oliver, and you had your dog. And I feel like you made the observation about how our two um, golden doodles were very similar to you and I, where Oliver is a miniature white one and yours is a full-size uh, not white one. And I regretted to this day not getting a picture that day. And I was like, that, I regret that. Like, I'm just like, that is such a funny picture. <laughs> well, man, it uh, fun times and it was great. Uh, you know, I appreciate you not like bringing up the fact that, you know, in your CrossFit uh, skinny guy workout of like 4,000 reps, uh, that you ran laps around me. I distinctly remember there being like six six exercises, yeah. and then yes. you would like sprint through them, and then I would just like drag breathing uh, for everything that I had in my life just to get to the bench press, and then you would make it through like three cycles while I was still just repping, uh, yes, repping bench press, and I had one I had one loop. And, uh, but, but I won bench press and that's really all that matters. It, it wasn't even close the, uh, for the, for my listeners. Um, uh, Mackie has the power lifter game going like strong man, like the big, like Atlas stones and like the big, uh, like axle tie, like the, whatever those things are. Right, and yeah. there is no strength exercise that I could do that. I could even be close enough for us to have like an enjoyable workout. It's like, Hey, let's take 300 pounds off and then Luke can bench press. And so of course I'm going to program everything where it's like, like, Metcon high intensity, like high volume. Otherwise, like it, the strength differential between you and I is so substantial that it's like annoying to work out where you're like, oh, I'll, like I'll drop it down to 275 on bench for you, Luke. And I'm like, that's a, like 270, like that's a respectable number. But with you, you're like, oh, do you and uh, my wife Teresa want to work out at 275? Cool. I'll come back. So, what we should have done is you should have been at like 90% squat. And then I could have been at like a 70% bench and then it would have, we could have just used the same wow. weight. Though. Wow. I, you know, that was deeply offensive. Um, that was really painful. And um, I, I don't, I don't know how to respond to that, but I'm, I'm, I let the record show. I'm deeply offended. <laughs> My, you know, okay. Well, let's talk about your book. It's terrible. It's not good at all. And uh, I don't mean that. I'm just, I'm just hurt right now. I'm just trying to process my pain. Hurt, and hurt people, Luke. Yeah, that's, that's exactly what that is. Um, okay, let me tell you a story. Um, I don't know if you ever knew, there's a guy from my church who's uh, passed away uh, a couple of years ago, but before that, uh, uh, Sean Adams was the ESPN guy. Do you know Sean? Yep. Okay. Not personally, but through you. Okay. Um, well, after... Uh, Charlottesville, which many people remember from like the the tiki torches and the khaki pants, um, um, called up Sean and I said, "Hey, we, we got to like do something at at church about this." And so we're we're talking. He was giving me some suggestions, like, "Hey, maybe we could just like take what you're saying right now and let's do this together." And so we end up talking. I'm I'm pretty sure it was that date that he did this. Um, but he 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 gets up and he he um. He says something which ultimately becomes like some curriculum that we rotated through with different uh, what we call growth groups, which are Bible classes. And one of the things that he said was, you know, we need a locker room. Mm. And 
he uses metaphor about like how in the locker room, like everyone comes together and like all the differences kind of become secondary. And if you have a locker room, all of a sudden you have like this common goal that people are pushing towards. And like, that's, that's what we need. And like that made so much sense to me. And so you write a book entitled America needs a locker room. And I'm going, this is 100% spot on exactly what we need. And I'm sure if Sean was still around, he would have you on the show and you could talk about this book because it was near and dear to his heart. But it's what many of us who've been in, in athletic settings have experienced where like the locker room, like we all watched on Remember the Titans, like this is the place where unity across racial tension is experienced in a way that nowhere else does. So why do you think it works so well in the locker room in, in a way that it doesn't elsewhere? Yeah, so the, the, the miracle of the locker room is this sense that in a locker room, no matter where you come from, uh, the background that you have, the histories that you have, the family culture, the faith, wherever you come from, you come to one place where you have a common goal, where you give the best of you for the person that's across from you, that there's yeah. no sense of I can be successful apart from you, that in a healthy locker room, your success is my success. And if I fail to give my best for you, well, you're not the only one that pays the price. I pay the price as well. There's, there's a, a shared common goal. Um, yeah. And in that sense that when mistakes happen in a locker room, because your success is my success and mine is yours, I can't put you down for that mistake. I can't leave you behind or cancel you out. Like a mistake yeah. doesn't make you a mistake. Uh, that I might call you out because- Wait, say that again? A mistake? There you go, mistake, say it again. A mistake doesn't make you a mistake. That's good. And, and like in the locker room, that's true. But in so many other places, we are conditioned to look for the mistake, to look for the thing that is wrong in you so that I feel better about me or so that I make my argument uh, stronger by pointing out, not by increasing the strength of my argument on its merit, but by pointing out what's wrong with you. But in a locker room, hey, making a mistake doesn't make you a mistake. And when I call you out, if I care enough to call you out, then I care enough to invest in you to help you get better because yeah. your success is mine. And that, that thing that happens in the locker room uh, is a, such a special thing. And as I saw that, and, I, and I've got a front row seat to this, because on the day-to-day, -day, I get to work with teams across the country from the Big 12 and the SEC to high schools across the nation. And, and I have this front row seat to seeing this again and again and again. And the more that I saw it, and then the more I saw the division across our country, the more I saw that people stopped listening for nuance or for argument, and they just yeah. start listening uh, for their echo chamber and for their voice to get shot back to them. That I thought, man, America needs a locker room. Like, we yeah. need a place. And it's not about sports. Sports is one of those, one of those uh, equalizers that crosses all boundaries, um, socioeconomic, racial, cultural. Like it, it crosses all those. But the locker room is not about a sport. It's about having a place where you come together where the standard is the standard and it's not lowered for anybody because of position or status or ability where making a mistake doesn't make you a mistake where your success is my success, where this sense that the team is over and above self. Like we need a place like that. And it can happen in a family in a lock in a, in a business it can happen in a church. Like it can happen between two people, but this yeah. place I'm going to come in and we're going to connect uh, 
with that common goal. And we're going, hey, the best of me for the best of you. Let's get after it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and obviously your experience, you know, you, you work with coaches, you, you work with athletes. You've been doing that for years uh, after your career as an athlete. Um, so naturally, like sports is the language that, that you and, and, and me uh, in a lesser degree, like we naturally gravitate towards because that's an experience we have. But like you said, it transcends just that singular experience. It's wherever there is something that's higher up. Now, uh, in, in the book, you have this, this character, Coach Smith. Um, he's kind of like the, the the main character along with Coach Washington. Um, and, and there's this line that Coach Smith Smitty excuse, says where he says, America doesn't have a locker room. We lack a common goal. And I think that's one of the, the biggest things that we've found with the way that our political system works right now, where we have replaced love for country with loyalty to party. And so we've bastardized the like the best of what patriotism means, which patriotism means, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm left, I'm right, I'm outside or whatever. And so we disagree here, but we all share the highest ideal, which is above party loyalty. It's, it's patriotic loyalty to our country. And what we've done is we've turned our partisan loyalty into being the only expression of patriotism. And so what happens is like, there's no common goal because the only goal we have is for our party or our political view to, to be put in place. And so I think that's what's compelling about the church is that theoretically the church can be this thing that transcends either side so that we have a higher goal that comes together. Now, sports does that as well. Um, and, and in some ways it seems like it's easier because a lot of times sports doesn't, um, I don't know. I, I mean, sports have been, uh, I hate to say like politicized now, like you have a lot more athletes who are using their voice now in ways that, the, you know, 15 years ago, you had Michael Jordan or 20 years ago, Michael Jordan saying, you know, I'm not going to talk politics because was it Republicans buy shoes too? That was his line, right? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. It, but in the locker room, like that's, uh, so here's my question. Like, how do we take that locker room ethos outside of the locker room? Because, you know, once you age out of, you know, middle school sports or high school sports or college sports or wherever, like we don't have that anymore. Like, so how do we take that ethos and bring it somewhere else? Yeah, so let's let's back up and give kind of a, a thirty thousand foot view of of the book. Okay, called, yeah, yeah, good call. It's called the locker room: how great teams heal hurts, overcome adversity, and build unity. Hold on, what's it? What's the title now? The locker room: how great teams heal hurt, overcome adversity, and build unity. Okay, so did, was it? Did it used to be America needs a locker room? Yeah, the the original title was America needs a locker room, and that was that was what we went that what we wanted. Uh, okay. and, you know, publishers, uh, publishers do publish things, and, yeah, they, and so they 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 tweaked it down, but super happy with with the locker room. Uh, you know, on that, uh, but at its like on the sorry, surface, buddy, <laughs> sorry, I was reading the old email you sent me like that. I my that's bad. Good. No, it's good. Okay. Uh, we, we, still, <laughs> we still believe that America needs a locker room. Okay, and so you know, on the surface, it's a story about it's a it's a teaching story, a short teaching story about a football team that, at the biggest moment of its season, faces its biggest adversity. But at the heart of the story is what happens and how a team deals with the adversity and the conflict and the hurt that comes when they take their eyes off their core values, yeah. when they lose sight of that which matters most. And so as I think about all of the division that we see across our country, uh, and sometimes even, unfortunately, in the church, we, it's as if we've taken our eyes off this sense that we're the United States of America and we've become the uniform states of America. Come on this now. That 
we have to look a certain way to be a part of whatever our clique is, left or right, Baptist, Methodist, Church of Christ, that we have to look a certain way to be a part of it. And, and I would say that there's this sense throughout the book that, uh, and it's cliche to say, but it's also like cliches are cliche because they're true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That united is not uniform. That we don't have to be the exact same to have the same goal. And in fact, one of the one of the the big points that we make in the book is that diversity is not something that has to be overcome, but it's our strength to overcome adversity. Mm-hmm. And the reason is because, like, what makes you you, and what makes me me, is what makes us us. And when we have a common goal, all of a sudden we don't look at those differences and say that's going to keep us there. We're gonna we're gonna get curious. We're gonna let go of this commitment to being right. And we're instead going to commit to being curious and saying, okay, how can you bring the fullness of you? How can I bring the fullness of me? I don't want to mute my blackness. I don't want to mute your whiteness. I don't want to mute the things that make you, you, whether it's your family history, your culture, uh, your preferences, like the things that you like. I don't want to turn the volume down on that. I want to turn it up and I want to go, man, I want you to bring a hundred percent of you, all of you to this, because we can't be that which we can become if I'm having to mute and only bring 50% of me. And so as we ask the question, well, how do we bring that beyond athletics? How do we bring that to the church or to business or to our families? Like when, like those conversations that used to take place only at Thanksgiving, how they're like, now that's just like the common text thread. And we're just all caps at each other all the time. Well, I think part of what we lay out in the book is this form of asking the three questions like, where am I? Where do I want to be? And then how do I get there? Like I have to be honest with myself about where I'm at and the ownership and the responsibility that I have in the situation and whatever adversity or conflict is there, whatever difference is there. I have to ask the question, like, what is my responsibility in that? And I have to be willing to face maybe even some uncomfortable truths about me because we can have the best directions in the world. But like, if you don't know where you are, I'd have the yeah. best directions from San Antonio to Dallas. But if I'm sitting in El Paso, it's not going to do me any good. Um, yeah. so I've got to deal. I've had to be willing to deal in truth. And then I have to be willing to, to with integrity, talk about where I want to be. And like, do I really want to be at a place of unity? Because if I say I want to be there, then for that statement to be true, Like I have to be willing to follow that up with the uncomfortable and difficult actions of conversations and of questioning things that I never questioned before and listening more than I talk. Right. Mama said we had two ears and one mouth for a reason. So I have to be willing not just to listen to respond, but listen to understand and to empathize. And then we ask the question, like, how do we get there? Uh, And what we lay out is that the way that we get Uh, from where we are to where we want to be is by chasing after our core values with humility and grace. Um, Mm -hmm. Those highest values, um, whether that comes from our faith, uh, from our mentors, from our family, those core values, uh, things like integrity over everything and excellence everywhere, service before self, these high ideals uh, that uh, for us as, as followers of Christ, uh, that are rooted and grounded in the scriptures about service before self uh, Mark 10 and 45 for the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve the Christ him uh, to let your mind be that uh, of Christ 
which did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or exploited, but emptied himself. And I would be willing to say, I'm going to give the best of me. I'm not going to exploit it for my own gain, but I'm going to deploy it for the good of the person across from me. And Mm -hmm. just beginning there and asking the question, am I willing to see my core values lived through? Those deepest values. Am I willing to see those lived through? Because if I am, then where that's going to take me, I'm convinced, is to uh, a place of empathy as opposed to a place of I've got to prove my rightness. Mm-hmm. It's going to take me to a place of it's going to stretch me to go further. And that if ever I find myself at a spot, there's just not a step further I want to go. That that's probably a place where either we need humility or we need grace. Yeah. That we, that we are when we find ourselves like this is as far as I'm willing to go. Like if we gave just a measure more grace, that which they do not deserve, what hasn't been earned, that which we so freely received, if we so freely gave a humility of a sense, I don't have to be right. I don't have to prove myself when I know who I am. I don't have to prove who I am. Mm -hmm. If I were just to press forward into my core values a bit more with that, and we start to have conversations. We start yeah. to empathize. Uh, and, and I'll give you a, a great example. Uh, so I, I was talking with somebody uh, that uh, that lived and b- believed in a way that I was always taught was wrong. Uh, in a way that there was never any conversation about, uh, hey, you can, you can think about this with nuance. The only conversation that was around was this is wrong and this is why it's wrong. And that's the totality of the conversation. And so that's all I had ever heard for 36 years. And then I sat down and I had a conversation with this person and rather than listening for ways that my arguments were right and how I could prove them wrong, uh, rather than listening for the flaw in there, I sat down and I said like, just tell me your story. And the more that I listened, and the more grace I gave and the more humility I had and the more I chased after the sense of uh, the deep core values of loving my neighbor, not because of what my neighbor did, because there's simply breath in my neighbor's lung, because regardless of what they believed, that my deep core values of scripture said that this person was made in the image of God, that the breath of the divine, the fingerprint of the divine was on this person and that they were not defined by this issue, but that at the deepest, they were defined, but this is a person who is known and loved fully and completely by the God of the universe. When I sat down and I listened to that person share their story and their hurts and gave them space to let their experiences be valid, the more I found my desire to be right was washed away by empathy. And it was washed away by respect for this person and deep concern for them. And like, I I found myself apologizing to them for the hurt that they had gone through on behalf of people that thought the way that I was raised to think. Hmm. And it was like, I I didn't need to sit there and argue with them with who was right. Did it change the way that, that she thought? Did it change the way that I thought that was irrelevant because we found this common ground of, yeah. I can see the value in you and I can see the good you're doing in the world. And hey, I can work with that. Yeah. It, it seems inherently 
the teachings that Christians rely upon as our core values would make us most natural to live into this way of life, where there is a curiosity, where I'm empathetic to to who you are, where you're coming from. I I love my neighbor as I love myself. And not because of what you deserve, but because of what God deserves for me to do for you, right? Like the greatest commandment is to, to love God and to love people. There would be naturally like this attitude of where I'm going to understand where you're coming from. I'm going to try to understand. I'm going to put you metaphorically, you know, you know, on the donkey. I'm going to take you to the end. I'm going to take care of you, do whatever I can without having to like, quote unquote, like change what you are or what you believe or what you think. But just because that's who we are as people, because that's what love looks like. But sometimes we get more caught up in saying why we're right. And like you made that move of like, I, I lost a, uh, like the need to like bolster my argument to, to tell you why you're wrong. But instead I was trying to be empathetic and to be uh, an expression of love for you after what you've gone through. Like that seems to be like the big shift. And it seems like curiosity as you described it is foundational for that. Like the curiosity, I, I need to understand where you're coming from. I need to understand who you are. I need to understand how you got where you are. But for some of us, we think curiosity leads to containment. Like if if I'm curious, I'm going to hear you and then I'm going to be contaminated and then I'm going to think exactly like you. And it's almost as if like if, if we don't know who we are, if we don't know what we believe, then whatever you say is going to cause me to fluctuate in my commitments to being the kind of person I feel like I'm supposed to be. And curiosity and confidence in what God has called you to seems like they have to go hand in hand for us to be able to do that. Otherwise uh, we have so much fear that we can't listen because we don't really know who we are. Yeah. So like, let's, let's think about it like this. So in in the athletic world, um, it's not just true at athletes. uh, It's true for a lot of us, um, but there's this, uh, an idea called performance-based identity. And Mm -hmm. it's since that my value and my worth is connected to my performance and the better that I do, the more confident I am in who I am and the higher I see my value and worth. But the moment that that's taken away because I perform poorly, because my career is over, because I didn't get recruited, didn't reach the status, uh, then all of a sudden I crash. Um, in adults, we see it all the time, like people tying their value, worth, identity to their job title, their salary, their house, the car they drive. And so long as those things are good, they're good. Moments it's ripped away, then they they lose who they are. Um, Michael Phelps uh, talks about this, that like after he stopped swimming, he was like, I don't know who I am. Like I've been Michael Phelps, the swimmer my whole life, 364 days a year, I swam. I'm an Olympic gold medalist. But when I stopped doing that, like now who, now who am I? Um, And the reason that that is so detrimental to athletes, to people, um, is because when something, when you find your identity, value, and worth in your performance, when something threatens your performance, well, then it's threatening your identity. It's threatening who you are. But when you contrast that with a, a purpose-based identity, um, and, and Benjamin Holtberg uh, talks a lot about this, but when you contrast it with a, a purpose-based identity, this sense that who I am, my value and worth is grounded and rooted in something that is not contingent, but is firm in our faith and who it is that God has made me to be. When I'm firm in that, well, now all of a sudden, these things that bad performances, better opponents, someone else having a bigger house, losing a job, that's not a threat to my identity or to my value or my worth. And so even in the face of difficulty, you can be confident and secure. Now, let's take that same idea and let's put it into uh, this conversation of 
what happens when somebody has a different belief system than us and, and it threatens us, right? We have to ask the question, is my identity, value, and worth found and my fidelity to a way of thinking? And when someone thinks differently, I'm threatened, therefore mm-hmm. I can't listen to them. Or is it rooted and grounded in Christ? And so no matter what ideas come, I have a firm foundation to stand upon. And so rather than fearing being contaminated or being threatened, so I can't listen to you, I can't be kind to you, I can't love you, now because I'm confident in who it is God has made me, I can go and fully love you uh, and and not worry about what that might do to me, right? When you know who you are, you don't have to prove you are. And so that frees you up to go and serve other people. You can't, you can't be humble and insecure at the same time. Uh, Say that again. You can't be humble and insecure at the same time. That's good. You think Christ was not cocky. He was the right size, but he was fully confident in who he was. And so he could wash the disciples feet. And so he could serve the one who would betray him. And so he could sit and dine with the drunkards and the prostitutes and all of the people who were outsiders, all of those people who didn't have what it took to be on the inside. That's why I love the gospel of Luke because the gospel of Luke, you great see a uh, great name um, because you see, uh, because you see, I, I had a, a snarky joke right there, but I feel like, uh, you know, that's, that's Storman's job, not mine. And so, uh, <laughs> And so like we see in the gospel of Luke, we see the outsider being made an insider. Yeah. Yeah. There was no threat by the outsiders being invited in. There was no threat to Christ by dining with those who, those who were on the inside said he should not dine with because he was confident in who he was. Mm-hmm. And so humility and grace, he was able to go and serve fully and, and that commitment to that, it took them to places. Well, it took them to be yeah. the form of, of a servant, be made in yep. human likeness. The Christ him tells us mm-hmm. uh, that he was faithful and obedient to serve even to the point of death. Come yes, on, sir. Yeah, like, no, that's, that's good. That's, but that's the good news. But Jesus wasn't cocky. He was the right size, as you said. I think right it's right. Like, Jesus knows who he is. And sometimes when we get lost up in identity instead of purpose, which I, I love the the, uh, the way you separate those. Sometimes our identity is that I always have the right answers. And my identity is I know everything and I've got it all figured out. And I've got, the, I, I am the answer person, right? Um, right? But instead, my purpose is I am to represent the love of God to the people in front of me. I am to represent Jesus in the flesh. Now I am Jesus's hands and feet expressing love and compassion and, and speaking truth, which is definitely part of that, but it's not me always having answers. It's me embodying truth. Like those are two different things. There's, there's such a difference between advancing the gospel and saying things about Jesus. Oh, wow. Yeah. Like, because there are a lot of people and, and full disclosure, like there've been times in my life where I have been there, where I was so convinced that I'm right, that under the veil of advancing the gospel, like I beat people over the head with the Bible. And I, I beat those who did not have the theological knowledge that I did, uh, or the answers that I did, or the arguments that I did. Um, I beat them up uh, in under the guise of advancing the gospel. 
And yet, like, the gospel is not, uh, it's not theological fidelity. The gospel is not um, having an answer for every, for every question or de- winning every debate. Advancing the gospel is bringing the good news, the hope that the God of all of creation, the one whose name, place, and numbered every single star in the sky knows you by name. That there's nothing that you can do to make God love you any more or any less than he does. It's this invitation to anyone and everyone to come as you are, not as I say you need to be, but to come and to receive and to say that this isn't just a message for you people. It's not just a a message for y'all that if the gospel is for anybody, it's for me first. Mm -hmm. Because all of my theological knowledge and all of my good works and all of my going to church and all of my great sermons and all of my, all of my, that if it were just me, if it were just me, Christ would have came. Yep. Yeah. There's a difference between moving that forward and winning arguments. Yep. World worlds apart. And they, they create two different outcomes. I think some people, they need to be argued into something. I get that. There's occasional people, maybe one or two that I've known in my life, but the rest of us, like the message of love and, and you are embraced and welcomed and included in the kingdom of God. Like that is what each and every one needs to hear. You, you, let have, me, uh, you have a place in God's story. Like you, like you can't shame somebody into growth. You can't mm-hmm. them into a loving relationship with Jesus. Like it doesn't work that way. And then, and so then as we bring that um, out of the theological, out of the faith world and into conflict and division that we see in families and in teams and in businesses, mm-hmm. we have to sit back and go, wait a minute, I can't shame somebody into growth. I can't yeah. beat them into relationship that there's that if it's going to happen, it's going to happen because I'm willing to listen and know them as a person. And I'm, and I'm willing to connect with them uh, and value them as a human. And I'm going to let my core values live and drive me to treat them with the respect and the value that they deserve uh, because they deserve it, uh, whether or not I'm ever right. Yeah, oh, that's so good. That's good. Uh, one of the things that also uh, impedes our ability uh, to be the people that God has called us to be, especially in this day and age, is an abundance of fear. And there's a lot of fear that maybe there's a greater fear for some of us to be seen as racist than to act in things that are dictated and led by race, racism. And there's a a great deal of fear. And you have got got this great line in the book where you, you say fear always clouds our judgment. It does. Like, how does fear cloud our judgment, especially in these conversations, which require curiosity and empathy? Yeah, so in the book, we talk about how the biggest adversity comes for the team at the biggest moment of the season. Um, and that adversity is that the starting quarterback goes to, goes to a party after a game, makes some racially offensive jokes, they go viral, uh, and then how the team responds to it. Can, can I interrupt for a second? Like, yep. While the story is influenced by reality, this isn't a... Uh, "Quote unquote real story, right? Um, but but that story is a story that has happened um, in that I'm aware of a, a very yeah. recent story. So like, it's it's a it's a real thing. So every yeah. every character and every event in the story 
has a a real connection to it. Yeah. But there but but the fiction is how it was all put together into one story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so everything that happens in the stories is based on real experiences uh, that I or my co-author Damon West uh, have had in locker rooms working yeah. with teams, but the one continuous story is, you know, it's a an amalgamate amalgamation. That's a, yeah. that's a that's a big word for me. Um, one, of my, not, one of my film film uh, film guys friends talks about how they have composite characters that yeah. they just they kind of like we got to amalgamate a, a bunch of different ideas and we're going to squeeze them into like this one role. Yeah. So it uh, anyway, carry on. OK, so the story uh, star quarterback uh, makes some comments. They go online. They're racist comments. Divide the team. They go viral. And and the response of the coach of the players uh, all of a sudden, you see conflict comes in, and so it's how do they how do they deal through that? What do they do wrong, and what do they do to work through that? Uh, you know, how do you how do you apologize to somebody like that? Mm-hmm. How, do you, how do you heal a hurt like that? Where where oftentimes, especially with with racism and, and so many other issues, very quickly it becomes about more than just the straw that broke the camel's back. Uh, that that wasn't just the one comment, there's all these other things that, that come into play. And so as we, as we think about that, like, I'll be, I'll be honest, man. Like I was terrified to write about racism. I was terrified to write about this book. Uh, what, for what was so terrifying? Well, so, I mean, the, the, several things, um, the, the fear of, uh, will, will people use this to bring in other issues because because an issue of racism was brought in, now do we get sucked into the CRT conversation? Um, do we get put in a camp that we may or may not be in? Uh, do mm-hmm. people start to assume things about the book, about us, uh, about me, that isn't true? Um, you know, on the other hand, you know, I am like I'm biracial and I am a lighter like I present black, I'm lighter skin. But I was raised by my maternal white grandparents who were born in 44 and 45. And so I didn't grow up uh, culturally black. Um, and so, you know, like, well, am like, am I am I black enough to to advocate and to tell this story, um, which is like an issue that like, you know, biracial and people deal with. You know? I've had multiple people on the podcast, even recently, just talk about that very experience where you don't feel uh, this is people of color not feeling like they're black enough to talk about blackness which for like a white person like myself like wow that is uh like that's mind-blowing but obviously it's real like a lot of people talk about it right and so like there's there's that aspect of it there is uh my co-author damon west like he has a very unique experience with racism he's a white guy uh, but he was sentenced to life in prison uh about 12 years ago um, he he got addicted to drugs and, and uh, ended up leading um, an organized unit, uh, a gang unit. He was the uptown burglar in Dallas and was sentenced to 65 years of prison. Um, and so his experience of racism uh, was very was very different than mine or many others because that's yeah. a, like I feel like you just like br- like that's a that's a lot and I just feel like you just rushed right past that. My co-author went to jail, life sentence, sixty five years. He was a burglar uh, in a gang. Um, oh, okay. I mean, I feel like that. I don't know. Like I know we we only get so much time, but like I feel like yeah. we just rushed past that one. Yeah. So uh, an incredible story. Um, 
you know, he was a college football player, got hurt, uh, and then ended up getting addicted to drugs, came from a great family, mom, dad, um, really, you know, everything that a middle class, upper middle class, um, you know, white family, like whatever you picture in your mind, like that was them. Um, yeah. Dad was a sports writer, had every opportunity, uh, and then just got, got in hooked uh, nasty to uh, to crystal meth, and then uh, became an addict and started breaking. It, did it start with pain pills? I, I think or, so. Or, like yeah. after the injury, like that is such yeah. a common story too. Like it's just yeah. a, and then it just it snowballed. Terrible addiction and ended up burglarizing homes in uptown Dallas uh, to fuel his addiction. Uh, and then one day, uh, somebody that he had uh, you know did stuff with got busted, and to save his hide, he turned in Damon. And then a SWAT team busts in on his door, puts a, the muzzle of a rifle on his forehead and a boot on his chest, gets arrested. And uh, and anyways, he gets sentenced to 65 years in prison. But here's this in the midst of all of this. All right. He's sitting in in county and there's a black Muslim man uh, who is sitting there and has this big smile on his face and is in this world of darkness is this bright light. And so he goes to this guy and he's like, dude, Mr. Jackson, like I'm about, like I'm scared out of my wits, like what do I do? And, and he begins to explain to him, he said, listen, and he, and he gave him the story of the coffee bean. And it's this incredible story. And like knowing that it's coming from Dallas County for guys about to go into a life sentence from this guy, it's, it's, it's wild. You got this white Catholic dude, a black Muslim guy. And this guy says to him, he said, West, he said, prison is like a pot of hot boiling water. And if I take three things and put in that hot boiling water, different things happen to him. If I take a carrot and put it in this pot of hot boiling water, what happens? He said, Mr. Jackson, the carrot gets soft. And he said, that's right. He said, if you go in there and you're a carrot West, he said, you're, you're going to, you, it's going to be a bad day for you. And you're going to end up dying in prison. And you have a lot of bad days before you do he says West. You don't want to be the carrot. He said, but if you put an egg in that pot of hot boiling water, what happens? He said, Mr. Jackson, it becomes a hard boiled egg. And he said, that's right. And he says, West, if you go into prison and you're an egg, what's going to happen is you're going to have swastika tattoos all over your face. You're going to get institutionalized and you're never going to come out. He said, but West, what if I take a coffee bean and I put in that pot of hot boiling water? So what happens? He said, Mr. Jackson, I have no idea. He said, West, if you take a coffee bean, the smallest of those three things, and you put it in a pot of hot boiling water, you turn that water into coffee. He says, West, go be a coffee bee. And so he took that so simple so idea. Good. And he said, he said, all right, but like, how do I be a coffee bee? And he said, he said, the first thing you're going to have to do, man, is you're going to have to fight the race gangs. Because the moment you get in, what's going to happen, you're white. And so the white gangs, they're going to have first dibs on you. And you're going to have to fight through the white gangs. And then when the white gangs are done with you, then the black gangs are going to come. And when the black gangs are done, then the, then the Hispanics. And he said, and it's, it's all about race. And he said, if you will stay strong, you keep being a coffee bean, you stand up, you fight for stuff and you got to fight for stuff, but you smile and you go in and you try to make a difference. He said, he said, Wes, he said, you'll, you'll make a difference. And, and man, God's honest truth. He, he, he tells the story much better than much better than I did. Uh, he said, man, the, the first day, he said, this big tattooed swastika looking dude comes in there, ask him to join the gang. And he says, no, he said, he walked in. He said, I was ready, man. He said, I'll rear back and I'll punch this dude right in his face. 
And he goes, and you know what happened? Of course, you're thinking like, man, this dude fell down. And like, he, he's like, no, he beat the crap out of me. <laughs> he said, I got the crap yeah. beat out of me. He said, but then once they realized I wasn't giving in, then it came to Black Haynes. And then it went through just like that. He said, I made it through all of that. And, and he ended up going to one of the toughest prisons in Texas. But seven years later, at his first parole, the parole officer asked him, he said, Wes, we've seen you over the last seven years. So you take one of the toughest prisons in the state and you've made a difference. You've turned it around here. Uh, it's like things are different because of you. He said, so I want to ask you a question, one question test. He said, so Wes, what do you want to do with your life? And he said, he said, I just want to be useful. So I want to be a coffee bean. And uh, and he made parole. Now he and he got released after seven years on a sixty-five year print. He's still on parole until he's like I don't know ninety-four or something. But uh, but he had such a unique experience with racism, right? Uh, different than mine, right? And yet, like neither one of our experiences are invalidated. Like we looked at that and we said, all right, like how can you bring the best of you? I'll bring the best of me, and let's put together a story to go. We don't have to fear our story not being like somebody else's. Mm -hmm. We don't have to fear our experiences not being the same as someone else. What we do have to fear, though, like is this sense of if I don't bring my best, and like I'm responsible for not making a change. If I don't go be a coffee bean, if I don't go listen, if I don't go try to make a locker room, if I don't go try to live out my values, like that's on me. It's not on my experience, anybody else's, that's on me. Uh, but when we live in fear of what other people are going to think or how they're going to invalidate us, like we lose sight of the power that we have. We lose sight of the importance of chasing after our core values with humility and grace. And as a result, adversity, conflict, and hurt follow. Mm, that's good. Mackie, I, I love to um, have you give us a motivational talk on the way out. And I was going to ask you to tell the uh, boiling water with three different things story uh, then for the motivational talk on the way out. So I'm going to ask you to come up with something different, um, maybe specifically for those of us who want to be the uh, the coffee bean, but maybe we feel like we've become like the carrot who's gotten soft or we feel like the egg and we become uh, just hard and not who like like we're supposed to be and not useful and um but but we want to be the coffee bean we just like we feel like we've we've gone down the wrong path and is there a way if we we've gone in and we've become something we don't want to be for us to be a coffee bean again so can you give us that motivational talk on the way out (laughs) because you know like if i got if i won the lottery what i would do is i'd pay you every morning to give me like a 45 cent 45 second pep talk as soon as i get out of bed that's what i would want yeah no, that's that's good, uh, and I, I appreciate I appreciate that. All you have to do now is just uh, follow me on Instagram. Uh, <laughs> now you don't have to win the lottery or pay me. You can just uh, okay. get, it, get it for free. And when you do, you can thank my wife for uh, for making Instagram happen. Uh, thanks, T. Thanks, T. Uh, man, so you know, here's here's the first thing that came to my heart as you as you mentioned that. I think about the Apostle Peter on the edge of a lake days after the crucifixion when before that moment with so much vigor and passion he was ready to cut a joker's ear off i don't think old boy was was aiming for the ear i think he just sucked it and like a fighter and he's like yeah. y'all hey i got the ear. y'all i meant i meant to get that i meant yeah. to get that ear no whatever no you didn't no, he, he missed 
only to be followed by, I have no idea who Jesus is. I curse you. Don't, don't associate me with him. To watch his friend, the one he lived life with for three years, to turn his back on him as he was crucified. And then I think about Jesus' conversation with him on that lake. I said, you know, Peter, do you love me? And feed my sheep. The sense that we don't have to be perfect. We don't have to have all the answers. We don't have to solve the politicians' problems. We don't have to start some social media movement. We just have to go and love God's people Hmm. and invest in them with the best of us for the best of them, to give them our best ear. There are moments when, where somebody doesn't need anything more than somebody to listen to them. They don't need advice. They don't need motivation. They don't need how-tos. Like, I just need somebody with a pulse that will shut up long enough to listen to me, try to figure this out. That there are times where people need a meal. And like, bro, like, I don't need... Uh, I don't need a sermon like bro. I need a ham sandwich with some mustard and some pickles and maybe like some jalapenos because it's Tuesday. Like they don't they don't need a sermon. They see mm-hmm. somebody that's willing to give them a meal. Yep. That, that there are times that, that that the differences that we see around, like they just need somebody that's willing to see the divine fingerprint in them and treat them that like God gives a crap about them. Mm, that's good. Um, and so the only motivation that, uh, that I can offer is like, go feed the sheep uh, and stop worrying about uh, whether they're, they're following left, right, in line or not. Uh, because last time I checked, like, we serve a God that, that leaves the 99 to chase after the one. And so like, hey, let's let Jesus do the chasing and like, let's, let's, let's feed them and whatever yeah. they need in that moment. Let's be the hands and the feet. Uh, I think that advances the gospel um, much more than our crisp, sound, foolproof arguments. Yep. Yep. Oh, that's good, man. That's good. Mackie, dude, thank you so much for the time. It's great talking with you. And congratulations on the book. Whatever it's titled, it's good. Uh, I, I've read it, but I just, The the Locker Room, that's the title now, right? You're on, you're on brand, though. You're on brand. Okay. Uh, well, here's the thing. America does need a locker room. And yeah. so your book, The Locker Room, will help us uh, get there. So congratulations, man. And uh, everyone, go get a copy of this book. It's um, it's a good one. Well, thanks, man. Can I add this one final thought? Add. Add away. Yeah. So, you know, obviously we're talking in faith and and the great gift that you give to your listeners and to your church is like you help people wrestle um wrestle with faith as it leaves the four walls of the church, you know, and it's one of the things I appreciate so much about you. Um, you know, as you read this book and I really hope you will, um, there's a sense that you're going to go like, wait a minute. Why is like, why is this dude like, he's talking about Jesus in the podcast, but like, I don't hear a lot about faith in the book. Um, and that's very intentional, not only in the book, uh, but in the work that I do on the day to day, Mm-hmm. Uh, that uh, it's very much a sense of hey, we want to go out and we want to live and minister in the world on on the terms of where people are. Like it's not like hey, like you have to be okay with me opening the Bible for me to give this to you. It's like yeah, no, yeah. because I open the Bible, I'm going to go give me to you. 
And I don't have to, I don't have to quote scripture to see that these things are true of scripture. And I don't have to, um, I don't, I don't have to cite, uh, you know, verse book, chapter and verse, yeah, yeah. yeah, book, chapter and verse for the book, chapter and verse to influence the way that I live. Um, and, and so I hope in some way that as you read it, like you see a faith in action, um, a, a faith lived out and that it would inspire others to go like, Hey, I might be in a place where I can't talk about my faith, but it doesn't mean I can't live my faith. It doesn't mean that the truth of my faith can't, uh, influence and shape and change how I speak and what I say. But again, it's like this sense of that doesn't mean I have to argue my point of view, um, yeah, yeah. necessarily advance the gospel, but it does mean I need to go and serve and feed the yeah, sheep yeah. without the value. And that advances the gospel. Um, I think in a way, uh, especially when, um, you know, talking about faith for whatever boundaries is not allowed. Uh, I hope that this serves as an encouragement to go and live out that faith. Um, even if even if you're not a minister in title. Yeah, no, that's good. Our our friend from up at Yale, uh, Miroslav Volf, in his most recent book, I think, is uh, which is called Flourishing, he talks about Christianity in a pluralistic society has to bring to the like the collective marketplace a vision of flourishing. Like obviously that's the title of the book. And I think what you're doing here is by like what Volf is talking about, where you you embody the idea of what is flourishing. And so when people experience like the truth put into action, like at some point they go, where does this come from? And then, yeah, maybe have a conversation at that point. But when you're in a locker room, like it's just not allowed. Like we wouldn't like say in Texas, uh, you know, where I live, um, like if you had someone to come in to represent all the different faiths, maybe you wouldn't want someone who's Buddhist or Hindu to come in and try to proselytize our kids. Um, if, if you come from a Christian home, well, in the same way, I don't think it's charitable and it's not doing unto others as you would have them do unto you in a locker room where you kind of insert that, uh, in a way that, um, is off putting to others. And so I think what you're doing is like, you're, you're balancing loving each other, respecting one another while still bringing like the principles of the teachings of Jesus. So I, I, I mean, I, I love what you're doing. Like I, I obviously, you know, I, we've been friends for a while, so I, I get the behind the story of what you're trying to do. And so hopefully, um, you know, my listeners who hopefully become your readers can, can put the two and two together to kind of see what you're trying to, to build with your work. So I, I love it, man. I appreciate it. It, it, it takes more work and it takes, sure. it, it takes a, a deeper commitment, uh, but it's not lazy. Uh, mm. it, it's lazy to say, well, hey, I, I know you might be different, but let me just let me just go ahead and even though I know, let me just go ahead and talk about about the scriptures, anyways. Hey, yeah. even, even though I know you don't want to hear this, let me go ahead and tell you, like it's that's a that's a lazy. Um, it, it's assuming, like I'm assuming that my value of scripture to, that I think it's authoritative means that you think it's authoritative and that's just not true and ultimately the like the witness of scripture is that you have the biblical writers who are constantly engaging with extra biblical material which is almost the antithesis of christian teachings it's i mean the babylonian creation myth to the you know paul on acts uh, in Acts 17 uh at, at mars hill like he's referencing their philosophers and so he's what he's trying to do is is ultimately what i think you're doing and so i Anyway, I love what you're doing. It takes a lot of work. It's harder, like you said, but it's a really valuable voice and, you know, grateful for it. Yeah, man. Grateful for you, man. You're, you're, a, you're an encouragement to many. Um, I wish that they could see you trying to flex right here. Emphasis on trying. Um, he's in a medium swole shirt. Um, this is extra large. This is extra large, bro. In extra the kids, large. His department? Read that right there. It says extra large. 
You, Come you on got, now. Like, at, uh, like, uh, it might be kids, but it's still extra large. Leave me alone, Mackie. All right? Not all of us are, are, are thick uh, like you, so some of us are, are felt, and that's I, all right. I'm 282 right now. <laughs> the only person I know who says I'm a felt 282. Uh, my man, looking great, though. All right, Mackie. Thank you, brother. Appreciate you. Uh, that's good.